Well, friends, let me ask you to turn in your copy of the Word to the 33rd chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis 33. We'll read the entirety of the chapter this morning as we continue in our series in uh, the life of Jacob. You recall last week we heard about Jacob wrestling, uh, contending with God face to face. He got a new name. Today we hear about Jacob and Esau. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Let me invite you not just to follow along with your eyes, but to supremely follow along with your heart and your ears. To be someone who expects this word to change you. And not just one more Sunday with one more section of the Bible. But expect that God will do something to you. Because if it's a living word, it's an active word. It's the word of Moses and the word of our Lord. Let's receive it as that. We're told, beginning in verse 1, that Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and look. Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with the children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph. Last of all, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. Thus, Jacob urged Esau and Esau took it. Then Esau said, let's journey on our way. And I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. I'll lead on slowly. At the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and say, here. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkah and built himself a house and made tents for his livestock. Therefore, the the name of the place is called Sukkah. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money of the piece of land on which he has pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. The grass is withering, the flowers outside, they're fading. This word does neither. This word endures forever. Let's pray. Ask God's blessing upon the preaching and the hearing and the doing and the loving of this word. Father, we come. I come this hour to a text of joy and a text of sorrow. A text of reunion, a text of separation. 
I pray you would show us that what is clear in this text is your power and your mercy and your pathway. I pray that you would show us Christ supremely in these words. You would give us a spirit of humility that exalts the Savior. I pray this in his name. Amen. What's the sign of a Christian? I mean, if you had to, you know, if you were in the alleyway, somebody pulled a gun on you and they asked, what's a Christian? What defines a Christian? What would you say? You know, when I went to Sunday, uh, Sunday school and summer camp, but most summer camp, when I was younger, it was love. You know, they shall know we are Christians by our love, by our love, by our love, a lot of by our loves. That was what we sang. And that's usually, the answer usually is love. And then that's what the Apostle John tells us, of course, in the New Testament. But what does that love look like? What's the shape of love? It's not just a heart. What's the actual shape of love? As you read through the Old Testament, you read in the New Testament, I think you find the shape of love is humility. Paul says, isn't that what he says, 1 Corinthians? Love is not boastful, does not seek its own. We are to have this disposition of humility, the gospel changes it creates it makes us humble people what's the mark of a christian humble and yet if you were to go down to mcdonough square if you were just to walk your neighborhood and ask people 10 random people on the street what do they think a christian looks like you know if they had to define a christian in today's world <laughs> um i seriously doubt you get the answer humility you also may not get the answer love that's a whole other point humility is not the defining characteristic of our lives. It's not the defining characteristic of the church in America or the church abroad. If you doubt that, just look at the kind of churches that typical Americans make when they go to other countries. Just ask a Christian from another country how they feel about American short-term missions that come for a week and then leave. I don't think humility is often the answer. Sometimes the answer is arrogant. Tourist here and here and back again. In our text this morning, we come to somebody who's had a disruptive encounter with the dark, dangerous grace of God in the dark night of his soul. That's Jacob. He moves forward limping. He's limping now. He has a new name. He has a new characteristic. But there's one big problem that I've encountered this last week. And the big problem is that as we come to this chapter, you know, I can't figure it out. As we come to this chapter, I can't entirely figure it out. Because everybody disagrees on that. As I read through it, you know, we have Jacob, we have Esau. They're coming together decades apart, 20 years. And some folks say they read through this. But what you have is Jacob and Esau beautifully coming together. Beautiful reunion, a picture of peace. And the other half of folks, as I, as I read through what they say about this, this text, you have backbiting, you have plotting, you have distrust. Some say that here, Jacob is a changed man. Some say, no, he's just still Jacob. He's still a deceiver. Some say he has strong faith. Some say he has weak faith. Now, ordinarily, uh, you know, when when folks disagree, I'm able to look at the text and come to some conclusion, and I give it to you. But I think in this case, there are strong arguments on both sides. I I think I, I could actually, if I was conniving, I could give you one side's view and persuade you of it and just not tell you about the other arguments. Now, do the scholars disagree because the text is unclear? No. No part of Scripture is unclear. 
It's not poorly written. The problem's on my side. The problem's on our side. Instead, I actually think this is maybe a rarity in the Bible. This account is designed to be ambiguous. Do you think this chapter is designed for you to not know the motives entirely of Jacob or Esau? Designed to deliberately leave you wondering and supremely to remind you of how little we know of what actually goes on inside people. And so as we go through it, you look your outline here in the in page four, I got two points, basically. And what we'll do is I'll give you kind of both sides, both, both angles, both arguments on those points. But there are these two basic facts. There are facts that everybody that are unambiguous, that are clear, everybody agrees on. Two parts of this encounter that are solid, that are substantial, that nobody disagrees. This encounter between Jacob and Esau. First fact. Let me begin with something very solid, unambiguous, totally clear. It's the first half, verse 1 through verse 11. Reunion. Reunion. Jacob and Esau reunite. They reunite. And one, one commentator says that this is one of the most beautiful sections in the whole Bible. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Because Jacob here seems like a changed man. He seems like a completely changed man. You look at this. Just look at what uh, what happens here. Verse 2, he has his plan. You recall from a couple weeks ago, he has a plan to divide people up so that Esau, if he catches half of them, the other half can maybe survive. It's, a ter- it's not a great plan, but it's his plan. It's a scheme. You recall that last time Jacob had, had said, I'm going to be at the back. I'm going to put all my wives, all my kids up in front. I'm going to be at the back. And even there, it sounds cowardly. Some folks said, well, no, it's just smart. We don't know. But here's what we do know. Something changes here. Verse 3. Jacob himself, after divvying up everybody, he went on before them. Something has changed in Jacob. His scheme is no longer, I'm going to hide the back. His scheme is now, I'm going to go up in front. Something has changed. And he then says, verse 3, continuing, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. That's humility. And that seven is not a random number. It's a deliberate number. It's not his lucky number. It's not happenstance number. But in the ancient Near East, you bow to show honor. Even today in uh, East Asian culture, Japan, here you bow. And those days you bow. And the number of times you bowed signaled how important you thought the other person was. And seven was kind of that critical, perfect number that when you were the servant and you're going before the king, you bowed seven times. So Jacob does. Jacob comes like a dog bearing its throat. He comes to Esau admitting his lowly position. And then, then he, he brings all these presents. He keeps calling Esau, my Lord, I'm your servant. And he says, eventually in verse Verse 9, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present. And then verse 11, he gives really the key to his, his idea. Verse 11, please accept my blessing. He, uses, he changes it from a present. It's not just a present anymore. It's not just a gift, which could be a bribe, by the way. And some folks say, well, Jacob's just bribing. I think here's a difference. Verse 11, he says, please accept my blessing. That's a loaded word for Jacob. 
Because Jacob has always been the guy who wants the blessing. He's always been the guy who's done whatever he could to get the blessing. He had. What's the issue between Jacob and Esau? Jacob had stolen Esau's blessing. He had tricked Isaac, their dad, into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. And now he says, I want to make up. He says, please accept my blessing. It's remarkable. It's a sign of grace. It's one way to answer the question. Has a person encountered Jesus Christ? One very critical way, the mark of a Christian. Has this person ever been humbled enough to give up their way? One mark of a person. Have they ever been humbled enough to give up their rights? The Bible, friends, should shake us up. It should make us humble. Jacob is now willing to say what is rightfully mine. I mean, I got it, whether it was good or whether it was deceitful or not. I had the blessing. It's mine. And you recall what God had promised. The great promise of God over Jacob was that the older shall serve the younger. The older brother shall be on his knees bowing down. What's Jacob doing now? He's flipped it. He's the one bowing down. Esau should be on his knees. But Jacob forfeits his rightful place. He forfeits. I mean, he has God's blessing. He has a word from the Lord, quite literally. And if anybody could use that, he could. But instead, he deliberately is willing to be last. That's what his encounter from last week, his wrestling has taught him. He has struggled and failed with God. Therefore, he can prevail in humility with man. And observe, by the way, the very first verse of the whole story here in this chapter. It should be familiar to you. Jacob lifts up his eyes. He looks. He he sees, oh, it's Esau and his 400 soldiers, his 400 goons. They're coming to him. The point is that Moses points out for us very deliberately. Jacob's circumstances have not changed. That's the exact issue that he was facing at the beginning of the last chapter. It's verse 6 uh, of 30, chapter 32, verse 6. His messengers come back and they say, hey, we came to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. There's 400 guys with him. Ah, scary. Could be good. Probably bad though, right? All of that is showing us that the circumstances in Jacob's lives have not changed, but he has been transformed. He has been transformed. Though nothing has else moved around him. No obstacle has been dealt with except for his self-reliant pride. His view of God has changed. That's a powerful picture. But I told you I'd present the other side of the story. Other side of the scholarship says that's all sentimental hogwash. That's malarkey and nonsense. It's nothing of the kind. And the very first piece of evidence that they point out is the very first word in the Hebrew of this uh, whole chapter, Jacob. The whole story, Jacob still called Jacob. And yet I thought last time, you can look at verse 28, last chapter. The angel says, God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Guess not. That one didn't take, that name didn't take, I suppose. He's still Jacob. He's the same old deceiver. And so all this bowing and scraping is really just Jacob groveling, folks say, some folks say. It's not repentance, really. It's obsequious. It's crawling. He just is trying to get out of the jam, and it works. Now, I will say, I think at this this point, I think on this first point, that view is probably not correct. I will give you my take on it. I think that's unfair to Jacob. Because the reality, what's the reality? 
The reality is right here in verse 4. What's the reality? The reality is verse 4. It's a beautiful reality. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. I don't think Jacob is, is, this is not a, a groveling, deceitful Jacob at this point. Esau runs, he embraces, he falls at his neck, he kisses him, and they weep. Does that sound familiar to you? It should sound very familiar to any Christian who knows their gospel. Because this is, most all scholars agree on this point. This is the verse, this is the language that our Savior uses when he tells the story, the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the father sees his son coming. He goes and he runs to him. He embraces him. He falls on his neck. He kisses him and they weep. You see, the reality is that the brothers are reunited. They're reunited. And this tells us the, the critical lesson, I suppose, for us is that God has not just been preparing Jacob in all this. I mean, Jacob's the, the big player. He is the main character. In one sense, he is the protagonist. We get all through about Jacob. But we see here that actually God has been preparing Esau as well. He's been preparing Esau as well. There's a lesson for you in that. You know that in every relationship you have, from the teensiest, tiniest, to the biggest, most impactful relationship you have, God has gone before you. God has gone before you, and he'll go after you. He'll, he'll, he, he goes before you, and he's going after you. There's a constant nagging fear that folks tell me occasionally that I'm sure I have as well, um, that you need to hit the perfect notes whenever you talk to somebody. You need to hit the perfect gospel notes. Let's say when you speak to someone about Jesus, you speak to your coworker, your estranged family member, your children. You worry, if I don't do this perfectly, I'm going to ruin it. They're going to they're fail. I'm, they're not going to be a Christian. That's a fear that forgets that in every conversation you have, you ain't the first one to talk to them. You're not the first one to speak with them. You're not the first person to, to be with them. That's God. God has gone before you. God has worked in Esau's life to soften his heart to receive Jacob. You know how Esau was 20 years ago? He was going to murder this guy. This was a beast of a man. He's transformed here. He's changed in this moment. And therefore, friends, we ought not to emphasize, overemphasize the human role in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in the Christian life itself, we ought not to say everything relies upon me or else. We see here that God has been working. God goes first. He's gone before you with your grandkids, with your parents, with your colleagues, with your neighbors. That lessens your burden, but it also gives you confidence to say what comes to your mind. It gives you confidence to tell people about Jesus because that's what Esau does. Esau is so merciful. He's so merciful that actually he kisses the blessed son. Esau does what he would never have done before. He kisses his enemy. He kisses the blessed son. That's why the New Testament can tell us in the second chapter of Ephesians that what has God done? God has achieved reconciliation at a vertical level. And therefore we can have reconciliation at a horizontal level. Because he's achieved reconciliation between us and him, unholy people, he has achieved that reconciliation. He comes and he kisses us on the neck. Therefore, we can go and kiss others on the neck. We can go and reconcile with them. So that's, that's unity, right? the reunion on the one hand. And yet, secondly, we see here, there's separation. The second half of the chapter, second half of the story. 
right? Esau says, okay, hey, we're, we're connected again. We're, we're reunited again. And then what does Esau say? Verse 12, look there. Let's go. Let's go on a trip. Let's journey on our way. I'll go ahead of you. Here, you know what? I, I know the area. I, I know the roads. It's been 20 years. Maybe you forgot the highway. We got a new highway built. You know, they finished construction finally. Let me take you. Let me take you to my homeland. Say here. I, I'll go ahead of you. And then interestingly, Jacob, you know, he, he's really nice. And he says, oh, you know what? I'd love to. I'm, we're just tired. We got little kids. We got the baby calves. We got the little animals. They're really slow. You're the hunter. You're a little fast guy. You got, you know, the, the fast cars. I don't want to hold you up with my clunkers. He still says, oh, hey, you know, verse 15. You know what? That's okay. I'll, I'll leave uh, some of my guys with you. We'll, we'll protect you from the, you know, the ruffians, the people who could be out here. They can guard the caravan. And again, Jacob, uh, according to some, he's very humble. And, and, and he says, oh, no, no, no. Verse, verse 15, there's no need. No, 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 no. I don't want to. I'm a good Southerner. I don't want to impose. No, no, no. That's how one group of scholars reads the text. Everybody's polite. They're all kind. They're all thoughtful because they've been changed. It's very sweet. Of course, the other half of the commentators say that that's, that's preposterous. That's silly. These are two guys who don't trust each other. These are two guys who are using polite, ancient phrasing to disguise their ill intent. Esau wants to keep his eye on Jacob, and Jacob's just making excuses. The kids are so slow. They weren't that slow when you were running away from Laban, Jacob. You, you made a pretty fast pace with all the livestock over those three days. You were really quick then. And, and of course, here, we can't see their motives, but we can see other actions. What does Jacob do? What does Jacob do? Verse 14, he says, here's what he says first. He says, let my Lord pass on ahead. I'll lead on, I'll come behind slowly. I'll be really slow, but I'll, I'll be behind you. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll be there. Then what does he actually do? Now, this is where your, your Middle Eastern geography degree that you all have comes into play. Verse 16, we read this. Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Verse 17, but. That's a very important but. But Jacob during his life, and if you ever look at a map, and you don't have to, I'll tell you right now. Those are in 180 degrees the opposite direction. Those are totally opposite places to go. You, you can't get to Sukkah through Seir. Esau went one way and Jacob went the other way. That's the point. Jacob clearly here is devious. He's clearly tricky here. Now, in this case, I thought the first point, maybe uh, Jacob's uh, more positive view. In this point, uh, I, I do think the commentators who are objecting to this story have it right. I think we see, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think Jacob's reasons are really legitimate. He's less than straightforward with Esau. But the fact of the matter is they separate. Whether, whether we see whatever the motives are, here's the reality. They don't go together. They're reunited and they break apart. That's weird. There, there's tension there. Why do they come together? And it's beautiful and it feels like the prodigal son and then instantly, bam, they're gone. Because it's God-ordained. It's actually part of God's plan. This is right. This is good. They had to separate. Why? I mean, if you just read Esau here, if, you, if this is all you had of Esau, he'd be a great guy. This is all we knew of Esau. He'd be open-hearted. He'd be wonderful. He's kissing and weeping and, and making up and everything else. But the, Bible's tell, the Bible tells us that he's a profane man. He's a wicked man. He's an unclean man. 
He has little awareness of God. He has no place in the covenant history of the people of God. Jacob cannot coexist with Esau. They are moving in two totally different directions, literally and spiritually. And we see that supremely in the fact of the geography. Where is Seir? I'll tell you. It's not in the promised land. That's the key point. Doesn't matter where it really is. It's not in Canaan. It's not in the land that God said to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, I'm going to put you in this land. You recall God's great promise to Jacob at Bethel with the ladder, with the staircase. God had said, I am with you. I will bring you back to this land, 2815. I'll bring you back to the land. What land? Not Seir. Succoth. That's the land. The point, the real issue here, friends, is as good and kind-hearted, as uh, willing to, to reunite Esau is, he will lead Jacob astray. He will lead Jacob astray. Esau's voice was the very voice of Satan himself, because if Jacob went with Esau, he was going away from the land of promise. One has been the child of promise. One has not been the child of promise. For Jacob to follow Esau would be to lose his identity, who he is. It's hard. This is hard because Esau looks like a great guy here. But the Bible tells us over that the nice guy, the morally upstanding one in this situation is not part of God's promise. And the immature guy, I mean, Jacob, I would argue here, lies to Esau. But the immature guy is the one whom God has set his love on. I mean, friends, this is a story in the church. You see this over and over again as Christians. Christians are not the most well-behaved sort. It's a poor argument for Christianity if you think Christians must be nicer or more mature than non-Christians. This is what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, look, you may have a cranky grandma who's a mean person, but she's a Christian. And you may have the, the guy down the street who's just the nicest person, but he's not a Christian. And he says, look, don't think the nice guy's view on life is better because he's nicer. Don't think the, the old cranky woman is wrong to be a Christian because he's cranky. He says this, you have no idea how cranky she would have been without God's grace. You have no idea just how cranky she would have been without God's grace. He says, look, you have no idea the kind of material that God was working with with, his, with the guy on the street. God is not, but supremely, of course, God's not interested in Jacob. He's not interested in you because you're better than Esau. He's not interested in us because we're better than other people. And yet we do see here that as, as Jacob reaches the promised land, he reaches Shechem, he does show here his faith. Look at verse 20, the very last verse. There he erected, this is Sukkah, there he erected an author, uh, Shechem, and he called it, here's a name, El Elohe Israel, or translated, God, the God of Israel. Now you read that, and we read that, we think of Israel, yeah, the nation. God, the God of the nation, God, the God of the people of Israel. Jacob didn't think that. There was no nation of Israel then. Who was Israel? He was Israel. You see, what he is doing here is, for the very first time, he is using his own name, his new name, and he is saying, God is my God. The first time God, uh, Jacob sees how God works with him, he, he protects him from Esau, he protects him from this vengeful God, and he responds in worship. 
He responds by worshiping his God. God indeed is the God of Israel. I mean, we see this, of course, don't we? Supremely, not in Jacob, we see this supremely in, in our Savior. Is this not here a picture of Jesus Christ? The one who walks in humility, the one who rejects the path of the evil one, the one who still is able to reunite with his enemies, who on the cross cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't this the way, this picture of Jacob, humble? Isn't this the way Paul talks about our Lord? It's Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And what did he receive? He got a new name like Jacob. A better name, though, a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. You see, friends, that's the highway for Christ to get honor. It's the highway for you to get honor. Humility. What is the nature of a Christian? The nature of a Christian is one who sees God's gift in Christ, one who realizes I can't demand anything of God. Christ says the ultimate way to be someone is not to demand your rights, but to give them up. And so therefore, no matter how mixed the motives of Jacob are, the end result is what God planned. Jacob in the promised land. Separation maintained. And yet, there are still folks who don't like it. There are still folks who say, look, Jacob, why did you come to Shechem? You shouldn't have gone to Shechem. We'll see next time. There are bad things in Shechem. There are bad things that happen in Shechem. Why didn't he go to Bethel? I mean, that's where God's going to send him. Why didn't he go to Bethel? It's a sign of spiritual weakness. No, I don't think so. Because this is the place where God first met Abraham. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, at, at the, in the promised land. He met him. The first place in the land, Shechem. We find in the book of Joshua that Joseph's bones are buried in Shechem. This is not a bad town. It will have bad things happen next time, next week. But Shechem was the usual landing zone for God's people. But whether he was right or not, the point still remains, Jacob's back home. So those are the facts. Those are the facts of the the story. Reunion, separation. Reunion, separation. But why is there this ambiguity? Why is there these two different possible views on Jacob and Esau? My goal is not to get you to go home and say around the lunch table, well, I don't know about that one. I'm a little confused about what Pastor was saying this morning. There's no failure here on the part of Moses, the author. There's no failure. Moses wants you to live with the ambiguity about the motives of Jacob. We don't get a statement, uh, Jacob's motives were great. He had a sincere heart. He had an insincere heart. And that's why, friends, it's a great reminder that you and I do not know what goes on inside the heads of other people. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within? I don't know what's going on inside you. You seem to be listening. You seem to be responding. You're laughing at the, suppose the good points. I don't know what's ticking. I don't know what's ticking. Maybe you had a huge fight this morning on the way to church. Maybe you've been neglecting prayer this week. Maybe you've become weak. Maybe you've been fighting temptation. You just gave in right before you walked through the door. I don't know. The same is true of me. That's for any of us. Now, we can make judgments on the basis of actions and behavior like we do with Jacob here, and we can usually be accurate. If somebody never goes to church, it's said to say they don't seem to be a Christian. But even that judgment's limited. We don't know what's going on in people's minds. We don't know what Esau's thinking. We don't know what Jacob's thinking. We can guess. We can give probabilities. I've given you my thoughts. But in this case, we don't know for certain. And friends, this is actually a crucial doctrine of the Christian faith. 
that you and I are creatures. We're limited. We're limited in scope. We're limited in understanding. And I think this doctrine provides, as we close, four really helpful salutary applications. Let me give them to you. If I can, briefly, don't worry. There's four. It sounds scary. Don't worry. Quick. First. And I'm sorry, there are only eight, but there's, well, you'll get them. Four. Uh, first, we should be cautious and prayerful. Cautious and prayerful. We should be cautious and prayerful. We should be cautious in attributing grace to people and prayerful for them. Cautious. Think about your kids, parents. The Lord's blessed you with kids. They're obedient kids. They're grateful kids. They're boys and girls. They read their Bible. They tell you they love Jesus. It's a wonderful gift, but you don't know what's going on in your kid's heart. At the same time, at the same time, you're given relationships with people. You're given other kids, and they seem to be hypocritical. But you don't know what's going on in their heart. We should be cautious attributing grace and hypocrisy to them. Our lack of knowledge should cause us not to be apathetic, but to be more prayerful, not less in prayer, to have a humble hope that God is working in their lives and to be prayerful. Second point, our limitations, your limitations, my limitations, they should make us humble and tolerant. We should be reluctant to judge people. You see somebody in the grocery store, you know, you go down to Walmart or uh, Family Dollar, Aldi's, I don't know, Bob, wherever you like. And you see a woman in the aisle and she's screaming at her kids. She's losing her temper. That's wrong. She shouldn't be doing that. But what's been going on with her? Maybe she has been suffering pain. Maybe she stayed up all night with her mom. We don't know. We see the outside. We don't know what's going on inside. And therefore, we should be quick to make allowances in accordance with the facts. We should be humble. We should be tall. We should be open to that. Third, we should be hopeful and persevering. Cautious and prayerful, humble and tolerant, hopeful and persevering. The Lord may be working in a young man's life. The Lord may be working. You may not see a sign of grace, but God can still work. It seemed like Esau was be furious at Jacob. And yet what happens? The father and the prodigal son. He comes and he hugs, he reunites. You may see tiny pinpricks of the gospel in the life of your spouse, your neighbor, but perhaps the Lord's bringing them to himself. And we have to persevere because we don't know the end. We don't know all the story, rather. We know our end. We know the general end. We don't know how to get there. We don't know all that's going to happen with the person next to us. And lastly, lastly, we need to relax. We need to be relaxed and trusting. We can't read people, but God can read people. God, there is one who knows the thoughts and intentions. There is one who knows the motives of Jacob and Esau. There is somebody who can give you the answer. It's God. He does read people. That's the encouraging thing about this whole story, that God reads people and he fulfills his purposes. He does what he says he will do. Was Jacob sincere in all this? I don't know. I've given you my thoughts. Did he have strong faith or did he have weak faith in this chapter? I'm not sure. I think he's strong at one point and weak at one point. But it doesn't really matter in the end because God's purposes are fulfilled. Jacob is brought to the place that God wants him to be. And you don't come here today as perfectly sincere people. You don't come here today as perfect people. This is not a perfect sermon. You'll let me know at the door. We've come here together before the promise of God and the perfect God, the one who is pleased to know all things and to direct us to worship him rightly, to enjoy him forever through the ordinary means of his word. That's why what's most important here is not your motives. It's not somebody's motives. 
It's not uh, the compromises that you make with God. It's not your weak faith. It's not even your successes, your strong faith. What's the supremely important thing is that God does what he says he will do. That his intentions are perfect. That his motives are clear and pure and right. The crucial question is not, what's going on in Jacob's mind? Let me divine his intentions. The crucial question is, do you know God's purpose? What is God's purpose? What is God's purpose in bringing you here this morning? What's God planning to do with your life today? What is he going to do with you this week? May God make us sincere people, yes. But more importantly, this story reminds us that God will bring his own home with your insincerity, with your hypocrisy, with your weakness. He will bring his people home. He brings Jacob to this place in the promised land. It's a picture of the fact that God will bring you home. Praise be to our God. Let's pray. Almighty Lord, we come and we thank you that you, you know us. You know our frame. You know we're but dust. You knit us in our mother's womb. You know the span of our years. You know the place that we're going to live. You know all the ins and outs of our thoughts. And your word pierces to, to them. Father, we ask that you would. You would make us those who are aware of our limits. Who are quick to persevere. Who trust in you. Until the day that you bring us to be with you forever. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.